Welcome to the Theology Podcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, as we podcast every week, we're podcasting from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, I'm joined by my friends, as I am each week, and uh, we're going to introduce ourselves. Let's start with you, Tom. Uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And as I noted earlier, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. I write some stuff, fiction and nonfiction, uh, but I'm not going to talk about uh, those things today. Instead, since it's my day, mm-hmm. I want to talk about leisure. Mm-hmm. Now, when I think leisure, I think leisure suit. <laughs> you remember I'm those. wearing one then. No. <laughs> but that does that is what comes to mind. I'm a child of the '70s. I've got those wide lapels, the hairy chest, the silk shirt, and the gold chains. <laughs> Actually, I, I I want to talk about Joseph Pieper and leisure, the basis of culture. I. Uh, that may be just as exotic for our <laughs> listeners as the image I just created uh, from the 70s show. But uh, I remember reading Leisure, the Basis of Culture many years ago, and I remember Leisure Suits. So I, I've got quite a span. Here, <laughs> we have a lot to talk about, man. <laughs> but, so uh, do Leisure Suits fall under the category of the problem of evil? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about privation earlier. The yes. problem with the Leisure Suit is not privation, it's... it's Super abundance. There's just too much. <laughs> too much lapel. <laughs> too much polyester. Anyway, um, getting to leisure, the basis. Now, why do I want to talk about this? Actually, it's 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 in a, in, a, in a small way. It's a kind of a follow up on the Bombadil discussion we had last time. It was my turn to to, uh, to introduce the topic of the day. And this is going to sound weird to to folks who maybe don't associate leisure with thought or leisure with uh, something uh, that is praiseworthy. I think oftentimes when we think about leisure today, we think about your day off, you know, and going to the beach. Uh, Nothing wrong with any of that. That's great. Watching the game. Watching the game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Those things, we think of those as leisure activities. If we have a little bit of uh, you know, perspective and we can look back in time, maybe 100 years, people would talk about the leisure class. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't talk about that anymore. Or I, I, think, I don't think I've heard that term used uh, for anyone alive today, but it was a term that was used for you know, a pretty significant portion of the population, maybe 5% of it at one time. And uh, the leisure class in those days were people who were, you know, old money often. You know, they didn't have to work for a living. Maybe we call them trust fund babies today. I don't know. But these are people often who had an, whose wealth was uh, old wealth, inherited wealth. And these were people who didn't necessarily waste their time playing video games or stuff like that. <laughs> there weren't any video games to play. But, but uh, uh, they would direct their energies often to... Uh, to artistic endeavors, you know, supporting them. They they could be patrons of the symphony or the museum or what have you. That's often how they justified their role in society. Uh, Like Prince Charles when he became an art major, right? And he lectures on art. That's that that, that kind of thing. Right, right. And that that actually is closer to what I want to get to Mm -hmm. than what I think we normally think of when the term leisure comes up. 
because leisure, uh, in the way that I want to discuss it, uh, is something positive. Uh, it's something that has a role uh, in our society in terms of promoting uh, things that are valuable in their own right, um, things that are good for their own sake. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, the symphony. Now, we could, we could say that Mozart is good for the intellectual development of, of, of children in the womb. <laughs> and I've actually heard that There was a fad made. going around. Right, right. Yeah, Mozart effect. <laughs> That's right. So you turn on Mozart really loud, and, and Junior is percolating down there, and next thing you know is going to come out a mathematical genius, whatever. But, uh, but that's actually, I think, a violation of the spirit of Mozart. Mozart, what Mozart was uh, intending to do and I think I'm safe in saying this because many of the artists that were his contemporaries were pretty uh, upfront about this. They didn't really, you know, uh, perform their work or or compose their music or paint their paintings or create their sculptures or even, you know, raise great works of architecture because they were useful <laughs> for achieving some other good or end. They, they, they did these things because they were celebrating things that were good for, the, for their own sake. You know, you know sometimes we talk uh, in these terms. We use what's referred to as the transcendentals. We talk about, we use that category, the transcendentals. We talk about truth, mm -hmm. goodness, and beauty, right? Mm -hmm. These are things that can be pursued for their own sake and really ought to be pursued for their own sake. Not because they help you do something else. Not because they help you get a better job or more income or even relax. Mm -hmm. They're just good for their own sake. Um, so you don't need any better argument for Mozart than just simply Mozart. <laughs> In other words, you say Mozart embodies something beautiful or expresses something beautiful and we behold it, we receive that. And that's good in, for its mm -hmm. own sake. Um, and really, this is what Joseph Pieper, the uh, German philosopher, Thomist, uh, was getting at with his book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. So I've brought this, and I'd like to read a few portions uh, from it. Knowing you guys, you'll have no trouble <laughs> right off the spot, you know, right on the spot, just kind of reacting and responding to it. But before I, I even get to, to, you know, what he has to say, or said uh, years ago, any thoughts on what I just talked about in terms of the introduction of the subject? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when you were talking about trust fund babies, yeah. <laughs> old, old money, and, right. and the, the sense of, I, I want to use the old phrase, noblesse oblige, that the, the right. fact that old money was there, they had a, a, there was a purpose for it. It was to provide employment, but it was also to promote culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My first thought was contrast that with a modern example like Paris Hilton. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I, I mean, that, it seems to me, speaks to everything that has sort of gone wrong with the world in the 20th century. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Hmm. Now, Paris Hilton, of course, she's uh, quite wealthy. She's the heiress of the Hilton, you know, hotel empire. I believe that's where the money comes mm -hmm. from. Yep. <laughs> and uh, she uh, pretty much is... Uh, the only thing that she seems to promote is Paris. And I'm not talking about the city. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 
I haven't heard from her around anything about her lately. So thank, <laughs> thank the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I think that doesn't that speak to to something though about uh, the fact that you know old money back in the day uh, would sort of understand the the resources that uh, have been entrusted, and just even what, a way of putting it, I think, puts it in a different frame mm -hmm. of reference than most people think today. But people, you know, in the past would say, okay, I, I've got, I have these resources. Mm -hmm. I need to uh, employ them in a way that uh, is for the public, for public benefit, for public good, for the greater good, mm -hmm. the common good. And one of the ways to do this is to invest those resources in, in things that maybe don't make economic sense. In other words, they're not things that you do to make more money but, uh, or even to give people jobs, but just because they're good. So like the symphony. Yeah, and I think what you have going on there is what I think maybe even Charles Taylor would call a spiritual intuition. You, you had a different spiritual intuition that was driving that. Mm -hmm. um, one in which placed the value on that kind of um, hot, placed the value on higher value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, when people had, you know, access to, to resources and a certain kind of appreciation for these things, they saw it as part of their carrying forth their responsibilities um, or their celebration of those things, depending on where they're coming from as continuing that and expanding that and mm -hmm. their culture building in a sense through right. maybe not being a great artist themselves but by investing right. um, in, in those kind of uh, endeavors. When you think about, say, someone like uh, Car Carnegie, Dale Carnegie, yeah. you know, Carnegie Mellon mm -hmm. you know, University, obviously he put money into that. Yeah. Uh, but Li libraries. libraries, huge. Yeah. Libraries. Yeah, libraries everywhere. So he, he, he believed that knowledge was, now he was obviously a man who uh, understood the value of knowledge in an instrumental sense, you know, mm -hmm. educated yeah. people or more productive people. But, but I don't think even Carnegie was so Philistine that he justified his libraries solely on that basis. I would have, now maybe I'm reading, giving him too much credit. Maybe there's a pug cast listener out there who would say, no, he was actually that bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my understanding was he was largely self-taught himself. Yeah. And right. so he wanted to give other people the opportunity that he had. Right, right. You know, so. And a library would certainly be right. a part of that. Yeah. yeah. I guess my thought is, is, that, is that sometimes we justify the pursuit of knowledge because it serves some other end. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are people who understand that knowledge is a good, in a, in a, you know, for its an own intrinsic sake. Good sense. Yeah, it's an yeah. intrinsic. That and that's the key thing. The in, in, it's like take the difference between, say, science and technology. You know, when we think about, they're obviously related. You know, yeah. technology benefits from the work of the scientist. But I mean, really, mm -hmm. you know, many of the things that scientists do or are interested in studying, we may never find any sort of practical use for these things. That's you know, right. like what's going on in a black hole of three galaxies away. <laughs> you know? It's the pursuit, the pursuit and, and the, you know, the unfolding of the puzzle sometimes, the right. mystery of it, and, and, uh, and sometimes it is the sheer beauty of it. I mean, I've heard many scientists talk about the sheer beauty yes. of a theory that is able to hold together all of these things 
um, that they're, you know, all of these things that uh, otherwise is a mystery. And sometimes yeah. it goes in all different directions that don't make direct sense, but, but right. there is some kind of um, mirrored beauty in being able to understand and put together in some kind of comprehensive sense something that reflects the, the profundity of the material object they're dealing with. Well, let's take a look at the Greek for theory. Yeah. It means to behold, to yeah. see. Yeah. You know, often I think when we think about it, or when people speak of theories, yeah. they're thinking about just some sort of concoction that someone creates in their head uh, that is a, sort of a cobbled thing, thing that's been cobbled together by desperate facts, you know, just observations and stuff like that, and they're trying yeah. to make sense of it. But in the but the, the word theory is the, the Greek. The origin is yeah. the same word that we get the word theater from. Yeah. You know, so a theater and a the theory yeah. are both addressing this whole matter of seeing. So what we want is yeah. theory. You know, some people say, "Oh, that's just the theory." No, that's exactly what we want. We want it's interesting <laughs> because in in the field of theology, in particular, and I guess any academic field, but you had constantly this this back and forth um, between theory and and practice. The practical, and, and it was held together better in different generations. You, but you really saw this, especially after the Reformation. Um, you have some that followed the classical that begin with the. It was often called speculative, but speculative basically meant the more theoretical, the be, the behold first. Right. Um, and then there came an em emphasis with the well. What does this have to do with the the religious life? You know, mm -hmm. what is what is the uh, byproduct of true knowledge if it doesn't kind of make itself? Now, one of the ways that you know uh, medievalist, you know, medieval thinkers, theologians, uh, and even early Renaissance and, mm -hmm. and Reform people would talk about this is the Mary Martha phenomenon. <laughs> You know, so Martha is the active yeah. principle. Yeah. She's the active life. Yeah. And then Mary is the contemplative life. Yeah. And that's, you know, the story, yeah. of course, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, Jesus comes over with his disciples. That's the problem. When you have Jesus over, it's always a big barbecue. Yeah. There's, there's, it's not, you know, you got to, you got to, Without the, without the pork at that time. <laughs> at that time. That's right. That's right. Hey, imagine that. How did, they, how did they live? But anyway, so you have the. Whenever you had Jesus over, it was always a big deal because he had all these guys, this entourage that go with go went with him. So naturally, the responsibility for feeding all these guys falls on the women of the house. So Martha, you know, the eager beaver, beaver sort of, yeah. you know hard-working Martha, she wants to please, she wants it to be good, she wants it to be right. Mary, the slouch, <laughs> the one who's like, ah, he's talking about interesting things, I want to hear what he's, what he's saying. No, that's not slouching, come on. <laughs> I, I'm with you, I'm with you, but I'm, 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 I'm presenting this from, from the Martha's modern, Martha's <laughs> perspective. Okay. Right. So, and, and I think Martha is the contemporary evangelical church. I don't mm. think I don't think we have any room for Mary in the, in the contemporary church. Right. As so, a matter of fact, I've seen a lot of people who argue that even to talk about uh, contemplative prayer or something like that is introducing new age ideas into yeah, the church. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it crazy. Is, it's, it's insane. Yeah. But here we have Mary yeah. who's sort of stealing away, trying to, is sort of slipping in behind the guys, you know, to hear what's going on. And then, you know, of course, Martha's beside herself, and I just imagine she burns her hand on a pot in the kitchen, and she just says, "That's it. Where's Mary?" And she, yeah. of course, Mary's out there with the guys, <laughs> <laughs> and so she's upset that that Mary's yeah. not pulling her weight, and so yeah. she comes out to ask for Jesus to get him to 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 get her back at, to, into the kitchen where she belongs, 
And Jesus says, no, no, she's chosen the better portion. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be taken from her. And I think that does exhibit, well, the, the difference between the way theology, when it's, I, I would argue, done properly versus not. Um, but I think one of the things, places you see it, and I don't want to take the, the whole discussion this way, but just because we're on that point about the difference between sort of um, the theoretical, the practical, or the way they're integrated, is seen typically with your doctrine of God. Because historically, you pursue God for God's own sake. If there's anything to be pursued for its own sake, it's God because the worthiness of the object. Mm -hmm. What has happened is, increasingly, we've, it's what we call the functionalization of, you know, of our doctrine of God, is how does our understanding of God um, present itself in such a way that it underwrites my best life now, if, right, or, right. Or, or for the best um, type of human flourishing, mm -hmm. um, or the best sense of um, political justice, or, or whatever these are. So the doctrine of God um, and God's relation to creation, I mean, you see it especially with certain feminist theologians where they want to say they don't like the way the classical view held hmm. God as first and foremost um, full in and of himself with or without creation, making creation therefore absolutely dependent on God, therefore becoming a model for the absolute dependence on... The feminists always have a way of making it about them. They do. They do. They <laughs> it's always about them. <laughs> it's always about them. <laughs> and they're and the latest they in their see, gripe. That's right. And, and how they can't see that the whole of creation is what is dependent on... That's right. right, right. <laughs> including the gods. <laughs> including the gods. <laughs> Um, but but the, you see, you start to see this um, this move towards uh, you know rehashing sort of panentheism, which is a view which basically holds that God um, needs the creation to be basically the bo God's body, mm -hmm, and so God mm -hmm. can't be God without having a body, and that it, the creation is God's body. So therefore, it's a it's a um, interactive. Um, if it's not codependent, it's at least inter it's an interdependent relationship. Right, right. God can't be fully God without the creation. It needs the creation to be God. Um, and so... And we repudiate that. We repudiate it. Yeah. Um, and this is, again, this is a functionalization of theology right, right. to serve a certain you know, view of humanity or the relation of humanity to God to basically underwrite a certain view of human relationship or... You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah and, and getting back to my, my point about how this connects to Bombadil, and I'm not going to go back to Bombadil anymore today, but, but often the, the, the criticism of Bombadil is he's too snaking happy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that he ought to be just as exercised about everything that's going wrong in the world as, as you know, everybody else is. And, and Lewis, years ago, had a very interesting sort of observation that he made in terms of the... the, the the happiness of the of the saints in bliss, mm -hmm. um, and his point was that uh, some people uh, take exception to the to the idea that heaven could should be uh, sort of uh, a place mm -hmm. in which uh, the beatific vision of the of of God has created the kind of bliss that makes it possible for those who are there to enjoy the presence of God and not be somehow, uh, you know, sort of 
made miserable by the misery of the earth. In other words, yeah. they, they, they've used this as a, yeah. as a, as a, as a, as a sort of a, a way to uh, criticize this, our, our doctrine of, uh, of eternity and, and, you know, not even, you know, not even as we understand eternity in, in terms of heaven and earth now, but forever. In other words, the idea that how could, you know, how could anybody enjoy being in the presence of God, knowing that there are people who have been consigned to hell, and and you even have you know you even have especially the, some of the artwork at different generations of Christianity where they show the, the final judgment and you see the saints in heaven rejoicing and then celebrating as they right. overlook the. <laughs> <final judgment. laughs> that's that's going to be on my next book. <laughs> that, that painting. Yeah, that's taking it even further. Yeah, than I was taking, taking it further. I just had to but, throw but, that but, in but, there. Lu yeah. but Lewis's point was what we what we're tr what we're actually creating with our with this doctrine of of, of sympathy that. It, that these people are promoting is the ability of the damned to blackmail the the redeemed forever, hmm. Hmm. manipulate them. Anybody who's ever dealt with a person who uses sympathy to control, yeah, yeah. one of the quickest ways for me to get me to shut you out yeah. is to is is to try to manipulate me with pity and sympathy. Yeah, because I grew up in that world where yeah. people did that all the time. Yeah, and um, anyway, that's a whole other. I could tell you wanted to jump in a minute ago. There, yeah. Well, I was actually thinking back to the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, in the Middle Ages, the contemplative life was always seen as the superior. Yes. When you get to the Renaissance, starting really with Petrarch, mm -hmm. uh, he's going to argue that the active life mm -hmm. is just as appropriate a means of spiritual growth and development as contemplative life is. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that, as moderns, we tend to cheer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, we'll well, we'll follow Petrarch in saying that the active life is actually genuinely superior. You're right, right. The interesting thing, though, is that Petrarch himself was more of a contemplative than an activist. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until the next generation comes along that you begin getting the the true activist humanists. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the curious thing on that is that the next generation then starts talking about the importance of leisure. Yeah, but not in that sense, right? Well, actually in that sense. Oh, okay. It, it, oh, they, they're trying to recover it. Yeah, because what, what they're saying, it's not exactly leisure, but it's something close to it. Petrarch really distrusted wealth. Hmm. He thought wealth was a corrupting influence. The second generation humanists start saying, no, Wealth is actually good because it enables you to pursue a virtuous life. Hmm. And that's really similar to the concept of leisure what we're, that we're talking about here. Right. But sorry, they're sorry. seeing this in the context of an active life rather than a contemplative. Very yeah. fascinating. Let's bring it to Karl Marx, right? Right. Well, Marx, of course, is it's the, the goal is not basically theoretical contemplation. It's not to understand the world, but to change it. Right. But his, well, people will say he was a utopia. However he puts it, he usually draws the line that the fruit of that transformation of things is the leisure. It's the, the fruit of that is the leisurely life in which you can contemplate, not... For, for everybody. So he reverses it, mm -hmm. and then he reverses the, the, the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting, because this hits right at the heart of things, is, is where, where one places leisure and the contemplative and the active Right. It's all the difference between, right. you know. Well, let's bring our, our, our listeners up to speed a little bit of what yeah. you just talked about. So with, with Marx, you have, 
you know, Marx is reacting to homo sapien, man the knower, with yeah. homo faber, man the doer, yeah. man the worker. And then uh, the idea is that what we want to see in, in Marx's ideal state, you know, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and then actually the, and this is where he gets kind of kind of funky, yeah. you know, the, the sort of the dissipation or the obsolescence of the state in this world that you just described where everybody can fish in the morning and yeah. hunt in the afternoon and read in the evening and discuss in the... So what he's describing is, yeah. is basically the leisure class, the gentry, the life of the, of the leisure class democratized, yeah. which, which is, is yeah. Yeah. something that he was, you know, early in sort of his, as he laid the foundation of his program, actually undermined, but you're right, he comes back to it in the end. Back to it, yeah. 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 And, and the curious thing is um, you can make a really good argument that what the Protestant Reformation did was take the councils of perfection, as they were sometimes called, for, for the monasteries mm -hmm. and democratized them. And yes, said that right. this, is, this is the norm for all Christians, not just the people, the contemplatives in the monastery. That's what Taylor is getting at, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah you know, in secu you know, mm -hmm. the secular age, right? Yeah. Right. Well, let me read a, a, a few sections from, from uh, Joseph Pieper. Joseph Pieper is a marvelous, uh, you know, thinker. I was introduced to him about a decade ago, I think, by Tony Esselin. Hmm. That may have been the guy who turned me on to him. But anyway, um, this is the book to start with, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. If I were to describe him for our listeners, I'd say he's as essentially, you know, a, a Thomist for sort of... Uh, He's, 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 a, he's a Thomist, a German Thomist, who probably is kind of the gateway drug into, into heavy Thomism. <laughs> but uh, but he's, he's got a, even, even in translation, he, he's got a warm and uh, accessible approach. Uh, Which it, is very rare among German academics. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I've learned that either German is bombastic like Luther or Nietzsche. Mm. Or completely yeah. inaccessible, like you know, <laughs> yeah. Heidegger or, or, or Karl Rahner. So let me read a couple of uh, passages here that kind of give you a sense of uh, what he's what he's uh, just getting at when he talks about leisure and what he means by it. Um, he uh, this is uh, at the, you know in the first chapter, third paragraph. So I'm begin I'm beginning kind of mid thought for him, but, uh, but this is where I want to start. So he says, for assuming all too rashly for the moment that our new house is going to be built in the Western tradition, a thing so arguable that it might almost be said to be a decision which is hanging in the balance. So he's very subtly making a comment about the state of things. And I think he wrote this in the 60s, maybe the late 50s. It is essential to begin with reckoning with the fact that one of the foundations of Western culture is leisure. That much, at least, can be learnt from the first chapter of Aristotle's Metaphysics. And even the history of the word attests, attests the fact, for leisure in Greek is skole, and in Latin skola, the English school. <laughs> the word used to designate the place where we educate and teach is derived from a word which means leisure. School does not properly speaking mean school but leisure or leisure. Hmm. The original conception of leisure as it arose in the civilized world of Greece has, however, become unrecognizable 
in the world of planned diligence and total labor. He puts total labor in, <laughs> in quotes uh, there. And in order to gain a clear notion of leisure or leisure, we must begin by setting aside the prejudice, our prejudice, that comes from overvaluing the sphere of work. In his well-known study of capitalism, uh, Max Weber quotes the saying that, quote, one does not work to live, one lives to work, end of quote, which nowadays no one has much difficulty in understanding. It expresses the current opinion. And even uh, uh, finds, we even find some difficulty in grasping that it reverses the order of things and stands them on their head. But we ought to, uh, but what uh, ought we to say and not uh, to the opposite view, to the view that, quote, we work in order to have leisure, end of quote. We should not hesitate to say that here indeed, the world of topsy-turvydom, the world that has been stood on its head, has been clearly expressed. To, to those who live in a world of nothing but work, and what we might call the world of total work, it presumably sounds immoral as though directed at the very foundations of human society. Now, I've actually come across this. I, I imagine you have too. So for example, let's take, let's take uh, the term uh, liberal arts, liberal arts college. Now, a liberal arts college today justifies itself by what? You'll get a better job, yeah. which is actually the, at, you know, at odds with what liberal arts means, mm -hmm. and I'll get to that in a minute. But, but today it seems like morality mm -hmm. is uh, something that can be only sort of expressed in the terms, in, in those terms, you know, in terms of working and, and being productive and staying active, the active life. Yeah, yeah. And, and any, I think anybody who knows you know, anything about me knows that I, I like to work. I, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot of things that could be classified as praiseworthy within that framework, but I don't think that it's all of life. Mm -hmm. Anyway, response. Yeah, Oz Guinness, I think it's in his book, The Call, talks about mm -hmm. two I think he may even use the term heresies surrounding work. Uh, one of them is uh, what he calls the Catholic tendency, which is to say that you know sacred activity is only clerical. Right. And the other is the Protestant heresy, which recognizes the value of work, but then makes the value of work the entire value of life. Right, right. So that you... You're married to your job. You become your job. You are what you do. Mm -hmm. The job is what gives you meaning and purpose. It's, mm. you know, those kinds of things. It's, it, it's the Protestant heresy on a biblical notion of calling. Right. Sort right. of like, yeah, well, the, the spiritualization of vocation ran right. that risk. Because on the one hand, it's the, it was meant to affirm the dignity of people in their ordinary ways of, of living and working to glorify God. Right. But it became intensified and became sort of everything. Yeah. yeah. And so in, a, in one of the usual kinds of inversions that I like to do, you talk about the spiritualization of work. The opposite mm -hmm. side of it is the, the um, uh, professionalization of spirituality yeah. in, in yeah. the Catholic yeah. environment. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, let me come back to this whole matter of uh, the liberal arts. Uh, this is a... a Across the page, I'm still in the first chapter here, and uh, here's uh, here's Peeper again. He says, 
Among other things, it might be pointed out in reply that the Christian and Western conception of the contemplative life is closely linked to the Aristotelian notion of leisure. Mm -hmm. It is also observed that this is the source of the distinction between arts liberales and arts serviles. I'm mispronouncing those. Uh, the, uh, the liberal arts and servile work. So this is what we're getting at, the active versus contemplative. And to the further objection that this distinction only interests historians, one might, one might reply that everyone is familiar with, at any rate, uh, one half of the distinction from the fact that we still speak of servile work as unsuitable on Sundays and holidays. Now that dates <laughs> yes. That's right there. Yeah, it's st actually, it's still true in Germany. Well, and that's where he's from. Right. right. So I think they got it insofar uh, in as they have a, uh, you know, a sort of a cultural, they've got some, the, the, their patrimony still recognizes this important distinction. There's, there's certain things that are not to be done on Sundays, certain things that are not to be done on holidays. Mm -hmm. there, those are for other things. Uh, so essentially what, he's, what he does is he, he's, he reminds us that um, there are things that you do because they're good for helping you do other things, hmm. right? So a lot of the time, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll ask uh, a person, well, why do you go to work? You know, I, when I used to teach philosophy or you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, I, and I was getting at teleological tele sort of structures and, and how, do you, how, you, how you think teleologically. I, I'd ask, you know, why, why? You know, the, quick, the quick question yeah. the kids always ask, why, why, yeah, why? Yeah. So you ask, well, why do you do that? Where, so I'd start with, why do you come to school? And they, they'd say, well, because it'll help me uh, get a promotion at work if I come here, and, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and I'm in school. And I'd say, well, what, what do you want a promotion at work? And then, you know how it goes, you know, because I want to be able to provide more for my family. Well, why do you want to provide more for your family? Eventually, they have to arrive at something that's good for its own sake, yeah. where it ends. So, you know, I, I, you know, of course, Aristotle said it ends with happiness, and he didn't mean sort of what Oprah, Oprah Winfrey means. That's right. That's you know, right. He, he had something else in mind. But uh, <laughs> I think happiness, even, you know, when we're talking about Aristotle, would include... Um, things that contribute to that, which would be truth, goodness, beauty, yeah. those sorts of things. So the servile arts are necessary, uh, but the liberal arts are things you do because you're free to do so. That's why they're liberal. They're arts. Mm -hmm. They're things that you, you mm -hmm. know, so like why do you, why do you want to write, uh, you know, a great novel? Now, some people would say I want to write a great novel because I want to make a million dollars. Well, let me tell you something. That's not going to be a great novel. It's just—it's going to be, you know, a pot boiler or something that will be maybe, you know, popular for a period of time, and then all the great artists were dead by the time. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you think about like uh, Moby Dick. I think Moby Dick had a run. Its first run was like 500 books, and they couldn't sell them. Yeah, yeah. So great literature often uh, takes a long time yeah. for it to be uh, sort of rise to the top. Yeah. But. But the point of, of uh, any great work of art is not what it gets you, it's, it's what it's getting at. You know, the, the truth of it, the beauty of it. Now you can think about its formal qualities and think about how it's put together and appreciate it at that level. But if it's classical art of some kind, then it's getting at something even beyond itself. Uh, it's not just simply understood in terms of its own inner consistency, which is what art for art's sake is all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Historically, art 
was a celebration of truth, beauty, and, beauty and goodness, things beyond the art you know, that, it, that art was intended to express. But that's a whole other discussion. But that means that what you want to do is have these, you know, these things that you're engaged in that make it possible for you to behold truth, good, goodness, beauty, God, mm -hmm. right? And uh, not so that God or truth, beauty, and goodness can help you enjoy some other thing. Hmm. And, and that's the structure of it. And that's what's been lost. That's what's been lost. Now, there's often the, the, you know, there are lots of objections to this. You know, one of the objections, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good one, is that back in the day, back, you know, when we talked, when we talked about leisure class and stuff like that, you know, there really was this, uh, I think, unfortunate relationship that it could have developed between people who worked and were productive so that people who owned could pursue the, li the liberal arts. And in that particular arrangement, there might be some very, uh, you know, sort of uh, ugly things that came out of it. Mm. It could come out of it. Um, I think that doesn't mean that the, the two categories are, w are without justification. Just because somebody misuses something or does something in a bad way doesn't mean that that the that the reality that made the sort of that is used to justify it is entirely mm -hmm. you know sort of misunderstood. So another way of thinking about it is what would it look like? Let's say we you know we say Marx he snuck leisure you know <laughs> sort of leisure pursuits in at the end, <laughs> but. Didn't the biblical vision include this with work and rest, Sabbath? Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking yeah. about, yeah. And that was for everybody. Yes, yeah. And then and, and you have that, I mean, even in the, the you know, God and the, the work of creation, it's, you know, then there's the consideration, looks at this, this is good, and there is this, this, this reflective moment put into there, and then there is this God resting. Well, we, what we know about God, God doesn't need to rest, so what's going on there? And then how that is serving for, for us to follow. But there is a sense in which, and then you know, Jesus complicates, well, don't you know that my father is still working even right, though he's in a state right. of rest? So you have all these things drawn together. But it's interesting, um, I remember in Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics when he's discussing the Sabbath, it's translated with the, the word holiday. Hmm. Holy, it's that yeah, holy, holy day, holy day, holy day, right, holy holiday. Day, right, right. But it is the, that kind of, I think, captures a little bit more of the, the, the kind of rest, not what we think of as partying on the holidays, mm -hmm. but there is a sense Talk of about which, work. Talk about, yeah, <laughs> talk about work, <laughs> recovery. Um, but this sense of resting from one's work and participating in um, the goodness yeah, of, yeah. Of, um, I think one of the reasons why we miss that, you know, when we mm -hmm. think about Sabbath, you know, we think yeah. about Sabbath, it means yeah. stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so often people are like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer doing something I'm enjoying. Because it is possible to enjoy your work. Yeah. You know, it's not always drudgery. That's right. And it can be a contemplative craft, you know. Right. But yeah. I think that uh, what sometimes is lacking is... Uh, sort of a, a, a way for people to enter into worship in a way that is in the spirit of what Peeper is talking about with leisure, you know. Yeah. Do we come before the Lord to behold Him in His truth, His goodness, and His beauty? Um, or are we coming in a whole different spirit 
or maybe not even coming, you know, with the understanding that that's something that could even happen. That that that, that what I was made for these higher things, these things which are eternal. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done a lot of things in my life that are already in decay. In other words, I've I've achieved things. And I can go back and look at them now and say, wow, I can see entropy at work right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Heck, I can look at myself and see. <laughs> <that. laughs> right. So, you know, and I think that's one of the things that Apostle Paul is talking about when he's talking about caring for our bodies. It's good, mm -hmm. but yeah. hey, they're going to die. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're subject to the curse. Yeah. Um, anyway, these are things to keep in mind. But I think you make an interesting point there, and I think maybe it wasn't drawn together. Um, in the sense that leisure and communing in the fullest sense, especially tied with Sabbath, are fully interlinked. Mm. Is that, that the leisure that is talked about here that is, is kind of the, the, the spring joy of, of life and being, the joy of creaturely being, I think is really what you're after here, um, is intensified because by stopping this other kind of of um, focus and, and labor, I'm using that stop there on purpose, yeah. one isn't stopping something. What one's doing is shifting all of that to something where they're actually receiving mm -hmm. everything. And there's a certain freedom that develops in that reception um, that isn't something one has to put effort into. And that's sort of that place of, of right. en enjoying the goodness and happiness of God and creation in that resting from Right. The burden tied towards oftentimes having to, to, to work. Let me, let me read it. I, I would add as well that there's a word we haven't used yet, which we associate with leisure, and that's recreation, mm -hmm. which is really a mispronunciation. It should be recreation. Right, right. Mm. The point being that as you labor, especially in a fallen world, you wear yourself down. And yes. you need leisure or recreation time to be restored so that you can continue in your calling. Right. And, and uh, before that, <laughs> thought ends, right. and it's interesting, one of the early church fathers talked about the way in which creation, God's act of creation, beginning what he lined with first day, Christ's resurrection, the new creation, the new first day. Yeah, the eighth mm -hmm. day, right. But that is not a work that is inconsistent with the resting on God's rest of the creation on Sabbath. Right. So right. you have this, this rest, but this continued work. So in a sense, that's why Jesus can say, this is very hard to get, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah. Because you're entering into recreation right. Um, right. where you're not bearing the same burden that you bore before. Right. Um, and that kind of, you know, of course, that gets into the deeper notions of communion, but yeah, I don't think they're yeah. unrelated. I think they're connected. No, I think there is, there's a yeah. real relationship here. I think that's, yeah. that's exactly yeah. right. Let me, let me read a little more from this, uh, because this gets us into the contemplative side of things a bit, hmm. and what, what contemplate. I think that many people, many evangelicals sort of, when they hear the word contemplation, they do think of this sort of new agey stuff. You know, they don't really have an understanding of what yeah. that meant within Classical our own tradition. Christian meditation. It's right. not it's Eastern meditation. Right. Yeah. So, so here, here is, here's Pieper again. He says, what happens when we look at a rose? Or what do we do as we become aware of color and form? Our soul is passive and receptive. We are, to be sure, awake and active, but 
our attention is not strained. We simply look, insofar, that is, as we contemplate it and are not already observing it. For observing implies that we are beginning to count, to measure, and to weigh up. Observation is a tense activity, which uh, is what Ernst Junger meant when he called seeing, quote, an act of aggression, end of quote. To contemplate, on the other hand, to look in this sense, means to open one's eyes receptively to whatever offers itself to one's vision, theory. Mm. Uh, I, that's my insertion there. <laughs> mm. And the things seen enter into us, so to speak, without calling for any effort or strain in our part to possess them. That's key, that's yeah. key. Uh, there can hardly be any doubt that that, or something like it, is the way we become sensorial sensorially, that's an interesting way to put it, sensorially aware of a thing. But what of knowledge, the mind's spiritual knowledge? Is there such a thing as a purely receptive attitude of mind in which we become aware of immaterial reality and, and invisible relationship? You know where he's going. He's a like, tag, tag, Kant here. Yeah, I knew it was coming. <laughs> he's going after Kant. I was Kant. about to say, we came the topic the other week is right back with right, us. Right. So, but there, there you have it. I mean, this is yeah. what contemplation is. Yeah. It's not sort of emptying your mind in a sort right. of Eastern sense. He's showing what is primitive to any active mind. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what, I mean, I, I don't know if this is, e a few shows ago we talked about the way in which the modern self um, it, it, uh, understands itself first and foremost in relation to itself. Kant intensifies it and say we never know anything outside of us because through our senses, whatever we experience, whatever invites us in, we are already active. Mm -hmm. We are already mm -hmm. working to bring it under our own management and stuff. But my argument was is that the Christian alternative is that there is a, is a more primitive relation prior to the self-relation and the, the projection of our thought patterns onto the world. And that's what he's getting at here mm -hmm. with leisure, yeah. is that you're, you, you're, you are invited into by the, the true goodness, beauty, and truth of things into something that is, is first received and sets the conditions for any next step. This gets us to, yeah. to a couple of things. Chesterton. Yeah. Chesterton was marvelous at this because Chesterton is all about celebrating being. Yeah. That's why he's always happy. Yeah. <laughs> he's this big, ch chubby, happy guy. <laughs> just kind of going through life. But that's also Don, Tom Bombadil. I said I wasn't going to bring him back up, but I am. But here's yeah, Tom I, again. I kind of expected that. <laughs> here's Tom. Tricksing down the trails, <laughs> singing his silly songs, yeah. but he's able to take on Old Man Willie. He's able yeah. to take on the, the, the barrel right. He's not a chump. He, he's in touch with reality. Yeah, actually, to take it a step further, it's not just that he's able to take on the barrel right. It's that it isn't even a contest. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. He says, get out of here, barrel right, and it's gone forever. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, there's, a, there's a, mm -hmm. something, uh, he begins to show his uh, philosophical chops in this next section here. Mm -hmm. So this will be the last thing I read from Pieper here. Um, he says, uh, uh, the Greeks, Aristotle, no less than Plato, as well as the great medieval thinkers, held not only uh, physical, sensual perception, but equally man's spiritual and intellectual knowledge mm -hmm. included an element of pure receptive contemplation. That's the one. Or as Heraclitus says, quote, listening to the essence of things. End of quote. 
The Middle Ages drew a distinction between the understanding as ratio and the understanding as intellectus. Ratio is the power of discursive logical thought, of searching and of examination, of abstraction, of definition, and drawing conclusions. Most of the people we know in academia would say that exhausts it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. But he goes on to say here, this is back to, to Pieper, intellectus, on the other hand, is the name for the understanding insofar as it is the capacity for a simplex intuitius, I think that's the way it's pronounced, uh, or simple induction or intuition, of that simple vision to which truth offers itself like a landscape to the eye. That's a marvelous way of yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, I, I think he's right on to the, well, if we, if we want to look a full answer to the views of humanity that have, uh, the, the demonic views of humanity, right. if you will, right. that have, have uh, you know, imploded, <laughs> um, much less spread like wildfire, both in the church but in, in Western culture, I think it is the retrieval of this from two angles. One, one that he, he, I think, is hitting on, though he's informed by it, his view of redemption, is, is the doctrine of creation itself. This is why, even in the in the Greek and pagan world, who were very connected to the way in which the reality of things spoke, and and that the, the first thing is to, is to to listen, mm -hmm. um, but but also the the um, you know the doctrine of creation in particular, the whole reception of being as gift, and and the whole reception. Um, of truth, beauty, and goodness as, as that which is much closer, or another way of putting it is God being closer to us than we are to ourselves becomes the way in which we can have a relation prior to our own self-relation. Mm -hmm. And that, that's sort of what he's after with contemplation. That's kind of hard to break down. Maybe there'll be a time to do it. But I think also one of the places is that where we can actually start to inform what the Protestant tradition and, and Reformed in particular have emphasized so strongly is the redemptive side. Mm -hmm. And I think tying these two, the contemplative um, in, in the doctrine of, with the doctrine of creation, which we've been trying to talk about a lot, and connecting it also to its, its fulfillment, like we talked about a little bit of, of all things into conformity to Christ. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and Christ as being the, you know, the fulfillment of the leisurely right, life, right, um, right. he being the joy of the beatific vision. Um, connecting those, I think, is the, the Christian answer, um, putting it into embodiment in story, it's like, Tom Bombadil. I, mean, that's what, I think that's what right, we're, right. we're seeing. Yeah, this past Sunday, where well, you were there at church, and I, you know, I try to express it to the folks yeah. that uh, you know the story of Christ is the story of the world. I, I and that was that was the the thing I was trying to get at. Yeah. You know, was this this um, uh, sense in which um, the world, as we you know s sort of commonly think of it within the evangelical world, is sort of refuse, something that will be left behind when we go on to something better, uh, is not really uh, ap you know, adequate, it's not even biblical, um, but it's in this, it, but it's in this uh, the fact that, that Christ's story is the story of the world, that when we, con con you know, con when we contemplate the world that we've been given, this created reality, it's not as, it's not if, we, if we see it as we ought, it's not as though we're, we're, we're tempted to hmm. worship it. We're, what we ought to see happen is gratitude emerge, right, and, and a thankfulness. Thankfulness. 
Yeah, and I think that's it. And um, I, I think what you see here also, maybe this is something, another thing Lewis had, had hit on, um, but his, his whole notion of, of being surprised by joy mm -hmm. um, is very connected to this because, and it's similar to what you, you encounter, I mean, in, the, in you know, all the biblical encounters with Christ in particular, you know, come see a person who's known everything I've done. Mm -hmm. kind of, there's a sense of, of just... Uh, immediate drawn to Christ as the fulfillment of things and people see him and give up all and follow him um, and and you continuously see with Paul you know that you know that this is this is his joy this is everything is complete it's the pearl of great price this is mm -hmm. something that so has everything wrapped up with what you could talk about as in, in leisure and, um, and and the completion of everything that you are in this one person and I think sometimes that's the part we've lost um, in our presentation of Christ. We always look at it just merely as what we've been redeemed from, but not what we've entered into is mm, this kind mm. of Right. And this, this is a reality that we can enjoy now. I mean, we, it'll, it'll, obviously it'll be fuller that's right. at some point mm -hmm. in the future, but, but there's, it, it, well, it, it, this is the language that Paul uses. He yeah. says, you know, in the sense of a, you know, it's a deposit, you know, the spirit, the Holy yeah. Spirit. And, you know, the relationship, obviously, between Christ and the Spirit is tied together in Scripture. You know, he'll yeah. take what is mine and give yeah. it to you and that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Now, in a different direction, what I was really intrigued by is the difference between ratio and intellectus. Mm -hmm. Because... What you see culturally happening now is, on the one hand, you have people who try to go entirely in ratio mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and reject in intellectus. These would mm -hmm. be people who are into scientism or rationalists. Right, mm -hmm. right. But increasingly, I think we're seeing a backlash against that, although it's not usually s described in those terms, where people are saying, no, what is really fundamentally real is something that I know intuitively. Yeah, right. Classic example, which we keep coming back to for this kind of thing, is transgender. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The difference is that just like ratio, when you, when you emphasize ratio and lose intellectus, it actually distorts ratio. It, mm. You try to make it do things that it isn't yeah, yeah. capable of doing. Right. In the same way, in rejecting ratio in a very real sense, you get a distorted version of intellectus because mm -hmm. it's not what you observe. It's not what, you know, this sort of intuitive grasp of what you're seeing. It's entirely internally generated and internally focused yeah, right, as yeah. opposed to just sort of experiencing the world and grasping it on some level just by simply experiencing the external world. This is just, well, what do I feel? Yeah. Well, of course, you know, in the modern, one of the problems is we're all trapped in our minds, we're trapped in our heads, you know, you could say that, you know, Descartes sprung the trap and we've never really gotten out, you know, uh, I think, therefore I am, therefore I have self. to think so that I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which, wasn't, which wasn't exactly what Descartes had in mind, but yeah. that's certainly that's where, where we it's are. gone. Yeah, that's where it's we the are. constituting self-relation, I mean, I think that's sort of where it go, ends up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, and that's saying whether it's feeling or whether it's through that kind of, you know, reason under through that kind of rationalism or that kind of, yeah. Well, here's, here's my, here's my uh, sort of homespun theory and the quest for, for certainty. That's what got us. Yeah. We wanted to uh, be able to, uh, you know, getting back to ratio and, 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 and delectus, you know, when I think, you know, when, what was, what was 
Moses's, uh, act, you know, sort of what was going on with Moses? How was he thinking when he beheld the bush, the burning bush, and the bush spoke to him? Was he was he was he ratio, was it ratio? Was he was he was he analyzing? Was he, or was he receiving? Yeah. There's something there's something about yeah. sort of the modern cast of mind which. Uh, in its quest for certainty, cannot seem to sort of, uh, sort of uh, discern or, or separate control from understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a kind of knowing. I think intellectus is a kind of knowing, as, as you you know, that I think is expressed by the you know we, we you know when we see him we'll be like him because we'll yeah. see him as he is. But in the meantime, you know he knows us. Yeah, yeah. You know before we know him. Um, we want to be the the one yeah. who can say that this. I, you know, yeah. It's starting with me. Yeah. It's starting with my with this, my knowing. And this is why. And this kind of a lot of kind of people have an allergy to this language. But I think it's because they don't understand it again, especially in, in a lot of the you know contemporary theological scenes. But the old language of participation, mm -hmm. participatory knowing, which is I mean even the reformers work within that 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 plane is. Is capturing this notion of, of you participating in the reality of things, and so you aren't standing apart from it. You're being brought into it. So when I understand an object, that object, I'm being invited in. I'm participating yes. in the reality of that thing, and that is is prior to anything I put put back onto it, even in my own understanding. And mm -hmm. I think that's really what's getting getting. Um, is, is it, I think people are trying to re return to. Um, it's the way in which we, we are, you know, in, especially in knowledge of God, right? We are made participants in God's self-knowledge. We, we are not the ones who, through our experience, even experience of God, therefore throw our interpretive categories onto things, and therefore all we're stuck with is our own sort of reconstruction mm -hmm. of who God is. There, yeah. You know. Yeah, I find it interesting that when you were talking about participating in things, the object that you were holding was a beer glass. <laughs> I was pretty bad with wondering where the next one was. <laughs> You've been participating in that for a while. That may be a good way of actually understanding it, right? Well, yeah. it, it's, we're getting to a point where we, where we it, uh, it need to ramp up. It certainly heads towards spirits. It anyway. does. <laughs> couple, couple things as we wrap up. One is, you know, as a, as a, as a guy who... Uh, uh, is a writer and as a as a person who uh, you know creates visual art, um, there's a sense in which this hard and fast distinction between uh, you know beholding and controlling, or between you know the liberal arts and the and the servile arts, is uh, not entirely clear for me. There are many artists, myself included, but I've known many for whom through the craft you discover things, you, you, you behold things, and it's, and it's in the course of a, a process of mastery as, as mm -hmm. you're becoming more and more. Your facility with the materials or the medium or whatever uh, develops that you, you can see more and understand more and behold more. So that's a whole other conversation for another time. Uh, but uh, kind of to bring it sort of back home, um, We've got uh, an authority on classical education is going to be with us uh, soon. That's uh, Dr. Ben Merkel of New St. Andrews College. And of course, that school is dedicated to the liberal arts. It's a, it's a great book school. And some of the themes that we brought up would be great to reintroduce to our listeners with, with Ben here. 
And uh, by the way, if you're in the area, if you're in the Connecticut area or even Massachusetts or New York, uh, we're going to be uh, having a live podcast mm -hmm. on uh, October 20th. So what's today? The 10th? So 10 days from, from yeah. now, uh, Ben will be with us, and we're going to be at Willabrew, Willimantic Brewing Company in Willimantic, Connecticut. Willimantic, Connecticut is uh, what we would call uh, around here Thread City. It was known <laughs> for its thread back in the day when the mills were running. And um, anyway, Willimantic Brewing Company is in the old post office in downtown Willimantic, and it's considered if not the best brew pub in Connecticut in the top two or three. It's definitely a really good place to, to, to be. So we'd love to have you with us. And if you want to come, uh, the way to, to, to let us know that you're coming, and we do, we do need to know, know that, is by going to our Facebook page, the Theology Podcast, and there you'll see a, uh, a, uh, a post about the event. And there'll be a link that you can follow to the Eventbrite page. Because the room we're going to be in can't take, you know, an unlimited number of people. We, we have to have tickets. And I think we've got like maybe seven or eight left. So uh, hopefully if you hear this and you want to come, there's still some left and you can, you can uh, uh, get a free ticket. It's free and, uh, and you'll have your spot. Another thing is uh, Ben will be actually preaching for me at PCM, my church, Presbyterian Church of Manchester. Uh, on the 21st, and he's going to actually teach in Sunday school on the theme. He's going to have a, a joint Sunday school session with all the adults uh, on the theme of classical education. Nice. So those are some things that are coming up. Anyway, anything you guys want to say as we wrap up? No, I, think I, I have uh, one thing that occurred to me right at the end, just as you said, it's time to wrap up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's just a, a thought. I have heard that in Hebrew, there isn't really a word that corresponds to obey. <laughs> Instead, the word is translated into English as hearken, well, which, hear, sure, which, right. which means to hear, to listen, and to right. respond. Right, it right. strikes me that that is the auditory equivalent of what we've been talking about with beholding hmm. in intellectus. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Now, if my now, you know, I'm not, I don't have the, the the stuff in front of me I need to refer to to do this, the etymology for obey, but I think obey is kind of the has a similar story, but we'll have to check that out. Be another show. That's right. Somebody can, <laughs> no. somebody can correct me on that in, in, you know, yeah. out there if that's not the case. But anyway, anything else, Glenn? No, that, that was just, like I said, a, a, a random thought right at the very end, and I, th I think it, it right. would be worth teasing out a little bit, but we just don't have time for it tonight. Right, right. <laughs> anything else you want to say, Tom? No, I think that said, I think I got everything out. It's a great book for those who haven't read it, um, yeah. and it really helps push things along in the direction we've been talking about, is how do we offer a Christian alternative based on the doctrine of creation, redemption, that actually, um, not only exposes the kind of problematic um, teachings that are not grounded in, I think, truth, like the modern world's uh, view of who we are, how we understand ourselves, but really goes right at the heart of the Enlightenment vision and shows, uh, shows some of the fundamentally bad thinking that went right. on and created a lot of the uh, pathologies that followed. Right. Well, anyway, thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.